Please then turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. So Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Brothers and sisters, then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't think that any of us like to be misunderstood, do we? But it happens a lot, doesn't it? For those of us who are parents, we know what it's like to, to ask your children to go do chores. You give them a little list. And they come back really quickly and they say it's all done. So you go to, to check and make sure they did everything. And all of a sudden you're like, well, you missed this and you missed that. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. I must have forgot. I must have misunderstood what it was that you had said. Or perhaps you've gone out to eat before and you've ordered food. And when it comes, it's not what you ordered. And you tell the waiter, well, this isn't what I ordered. And they say to you, oh, I'm so sorry. I must have misunderstood what it was that you had ordered. And so as we see, misunderstandings cause people to act or do something that they shouldn't and neglect to do that which they should, even if they are given the correct information. And so it's no wonder why Jesus dismisses the crowd. It's because they've misunderstood Him. They misunderstood His sayings. They've misunderstood His teachings. They've misunderstood His actions. And how do we know that? Because here in Mark's Gospel, it doesn't say why. Well, because we have an additional element to the story, thankfully, from the Gospel of John, which kind of fills in more of the picture. In John chapter 6, verse 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him King, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. You see, the chatter from the crowds continues to build and build with each work that Jesus does. And now it's at the point where many of them are putting two and two together when they hear what He's saying and they see what He's doing. And so now they want to come and make Him king. They get the messianic symbolism of what's going on. And being the shepherd, they being the sheep sitting on the green pastures, they, they see all this. They're, they're, they're putting it all together. And they see Jesus as the one who has come to restore Israel to its greatness. 
And yet the problem is, is that they were thinking in terms of, of national and political greatness. Right? They have misunderstood why Jesus was there. They have misunderstood why Jesus has come. And yet Jesus is constantly being misunderstood even today, isn't he, brothers and sisters? Right? In religious departments and universities across the world, Jesus is being misunderstood. Right? He's misunderstood by many of the world's religions. No matter how much we tell them this is who Christ reveals himself to be, right? they misunderstand Jesus. Even within the confines of church walls, Christians misunderstand Jesus. Right? People don't understand why he has come into the world. And when you misunderstand who Jesus is, why he has come, what he has done, then what happens is you tend to draw false conclusions. And when you draw false conclusions, this has a tendency to be spiritually detrimental to the saints. And we see this. For those who who would call themselves Christians and yet aren't that familiar with Jesus, usually one of two things happens, doesn't it? Right? They either misunderstand Jesus so much that they believe they are saved when they are not, or they misunderstand perhaps a a characteristic of Jesus, an attribute of Jesus, a promise of Jesus. And so although they are a believer, they don't have assurance that they are. And haven't we all gone through this? Haven't we all experienced this at some point in our life? Or don't we all know someone who has? Someone who's felt extremely confident in their salvation. They have felt safe with Christ. They know that they are saved. But they shouldn't have thought that way, should they have? Because they weren't believers. Or if they were, they were extremely weak believers. And so they should have never had that kind of assurance. Or you have others who are believers. Who love the Lord. But who don't understand Him correctly. And so they live their entire Christian life in fear. In terror. Not understanding who He is. Instead of feeling safe and secure as believers ought to. And so we see misunderstanding Jesus affects the Christian in our daily lives. And this is what we see today in our text. The misunderstanding of Jesus by these apostles affects their lives. Right? Their misunderstanding of Jesus comes back to, to bite them again now. As they are on this boat, they should be feeling secure even while they struggle. And yet, what are they feeling? They're feeling alone. Right? Instead of trusting in Christ, as this boat is being pushed back by the wind, right? they are terrified because Christ is not with them to save them. But if they only understood who Jesus is, based on what He has told them, based on the works that He has demonstrated, they wouldn't have felt this way. Because they knew, they would have known that although He was not on the boat, He was very near to them. Right? You see, we don't need Jesus physically next to us for Him to be close to us. Physical proximity matters not with Christ. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That is great news for all of us, isn't it? As Christ now reigns in heaven. Because we oftentimes, likewise, can feel alone. We can feel grief and despair. We can feel fear. But brothers and sisters, we ought to feel safe with Christ. And we can be safe with Christ. We can feel safe with Christ. Every Christian ought to know they are safe with Christ for these two reasons that I think that we can draw out of our text this morning. And so the first is this. We can feel safe with Christ 
because Christ is our high priest. And we can feel safe with Christ because Christ is our high priest. And then second, we can feel safe with Christ because of the wonderful glory of Christ. Now, there's no denying that Jesus is our high priest, is there? Right In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we're told, Since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Right? And what is it that the priests of the Old Covenant did on behalf of the Israelites? Right? They interceded for the people, didn't they? By offering sacrifice and prayer on behalf of the people. And what is it that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has come to do? Right? To offer sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice on behalf of His people, as well as offering prayers for His people. And so what do we see here in our text today in verse 46? Jesus, in His high priestly role, as He dismisses the crowd, He goes up to the mountaintop and prays. He prays. And we're not told what Jesus prays for. But I don't think it's a far leap to deduce that He is praying for the saints. Jesus has made it very obvious every time He prays that He is always making prayers and petitions for His saints. We can look to a few examples in Luke 22, verse 32. He tells Peter, I pray that your faith will not fail you. Right In John 14, He says He'll pray to the Father for the Helper to come. In John 17, He prays in His high priestly prayer that the Father wouldn't take us out of the world, but that He would keep us, that He would preserve us, that He would protect us, and that He would sanctify us in all truth. And so Jesus is constantly making petition for the saints. So we can be assured that as the saints are out to sea, Jesus is upon the mountaintop praying on behalf of the saints. And it is in this prayer for the saints that Christ is doing His work as intercessor. And in fact, brothers and sisters, what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us is that Jesus today lives to make intercession for His people. Now, but all the while that he's praying and that he's doing this intercessory work, that he's acting as high priest, they are struggling. Right? They're out to sea struggling as the wind is pushing against them. And what this ought to teach us, what we ought to learn from this, is that the Christian life, likewise, is filled with struggle. It's filled with trial. Right? We might lose our jobs and not know where our, our next money is going to come in order to pay our bills. Right? We might become terribly sick and feel as if we might lose our life. We might lose a spouse. We might lose a family member. We might lose someone who's dear and close to us. We might have troubles in relationships in our marriage with our children. We might feel like we are being severely tested. But brothers and sisters, we must remember this. We must continue to trust in our great high priest who is interceding always on our behalf, knowing that Christ lives to make intercession for us. Right? Just because we can't see Jesus upon the mountaintop, just because Jesus isn't in the boat next to us, does not mean that He isn't providing for us all that we need. But this means understanding, brothers and sisters, that we need that once and for all perfect sacrifice of Christ. Right? If we don't believe that we need it, then we're never going to turn to Him for deliverance. We're never going to turn to Him as our intercessor. But when we understand this, when we turn to Christ by faith, 
then we can know that Christ will lead us. He will protect us. He will keep us. And He will deliver His elect through the struggles and hard times we deal with so long as we live. You see, though, this is what the apostles here failed to realize. They failed to realize this on the boat. They weren't expecting Jesus to show up. They thought they were out there all alone by themselves because they were too far away for Jesus to get to them. Right? Instead of saying, just as you could heal the lame and feed 5,000 plus with five loaves of bread and two fish, just as you have been able to uh, raise the, the dead to life, Lord, we knew that you could come out here and make it on the boat with, by us. But did they, did they say that? Was that their reaction? No, we read in verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and immediately were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. You see, instead of trusting in him and believing that he was able to come and to rescue them, they were in terror. They were in terror. They misunderstood Jesus' capability once again. They misunderstood why He sent them out to the sea apart from Him. They misunderstood that just because they were out there and He wasn't there, that and somehow He forgot what was going on. They misunderstood that just because they were in the middle of the sea, Jesus was still able to get to them. And brothers and sisters, this is true of our Lord today. As Jesus sits upon the heavenly mountaintop, He knows everything that is going on in all of our lives as He is working all things out for our good, as He is interceding for us on our behalf. And knowing this, it should cause the saints great comfort. In the most difficult of times, we should feel safe in the arms of Christ, just as these disciples should have felt safe in the arms of Christ this day. But see, brothers and sisters, we must make use of Christ as our high priest. Right? We see what happens when the saints don't make use of Christ as their high priest. Like the apostles, they endure unnecessary stress, unnecessary trials, unnecessary struggling, unnecessary despair and fear. Right? But when you understand that Christ is your high priest, when you understand what that undertaking as high priest entails, then as believers, we should feel nothing but the great comfort and joy in all circumstances, in all situations in life. Wilhelmus Abraco, the Dutch Reformed minister of the 17th century, summarizes how we should be comforted in this life regardless of whether we deal with physical or spiritual miseries because we know Christ is our high priest. And he says this, Do your sins weigh you down? Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. Is your soul ashamed? Jesus is your righteousness. Is your soul troubled by the wrath of God? Well, Jesus delivers you from the wrath to come. Do you fear eternal condemnation? Well, brothers and sisters, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does your soul long for communion with God? Well, Jesus will bring us to God. Do bodily troubles afflict your soul? Are you discouraged and feeling grief and sorrow? Well, look 
to Jesus Christ, your high priest, who is a faithful and merciful high priest. And when we know this, brothers and sisters, this likewise ought to motivate us to prayer, shouldn't it? Right? Prayer is the fruit of Christ's intercession. Prayer is the fruit of Christ's intercession. Right? We should be able to go boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession on our behalf. And yet, even when we look to the example of Christ in His prayer life here, as He, as he kneels down, as He cries out to pray, we must understand that He no longer intercedes in this manner. Right? That was a part of Christ's humiliation. No more does He intercede like this. Now He sits at the right hand of God. He takes His rightful place next to our Lord in that heavenly sanctuary. And in doing so, He demonstrates the perfectly efficacious nature of His work and His suffering and death for His saints for all time. Right? When He takes that place in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of God, He is demonstrating to the Father that He has paid the price in full. Not one penny, not one cent is left or owed. And when we come to understand this, should it not cause us to flee to our Lord every morning in prayer, asking Him for everything that we need for that day? Shouldn't it cause us to flee towards Him midday when we feel already depleted in our energy, to go back to Him and ask Him to renew that grace within us? Shouldn't it cause us to go to Him at night in thanksgiving for all that He has blessed us with that day? Should it not cause us to go to Him in the very best of times, in the very worst of times, finding all joy, happiness, safety, and comfort in Christ? This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, that we do not misunderstand Christ. Because we're told that Jesus says to them as they look upon Him in verse 50, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He says to them, Don't be afraid. As Christians, we have no need to fear. For Jesus Christ, our High Priest, is near. But do you see that when you misunderstand Jesus, what He does on our behalf, that we deprive ourselves of those great benefits of Christ out of ignorance, and we end up living unnecessarily scared and in fear, not remembering these great promises of God. Now so far we've seen that Jesus sends these disciples out to the sea that they are struggling with the wind and the waters, that as they are struggling, Jesus is upon the mountaintop praying. And now we are told what? He goes out to the sea. He walks out there and they see Him. And what happens? They're terrified. They think they have seen a ghost. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid. It's in what Jesus says to them and in what Jesus demonstrates to them that reveals to them the gloriousness of Christ once again which if they had understood before would have caused a, a much different reaction here this time as they are on this boat apart from Jesus. And this leads us though to our second point then, which is the wonderful glory of Christ. You see, the apostles should not have feared, but they have, should have felt safe had they have known and recognized the wonderful glory of Christ. You see, but their problem is our problem. That is this that oftentimes we shortchange God of His glory. Or we don't rightly discern the glory of God because if we did, in these type of circumstances, we would act and behave in a far different manner. 
if we understood that the ends for which our Lord works is always His glory, then no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we wouldn't be concerned. We wouldn't be fearful. It's only because we doubt the glory of God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 4-5, to we read this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You see, Jesus here says that man's redemption was for God's glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, brothers and sisters, we were redeemed for God's glory. We are to live for God's glory. When Christ returns, it will be for His glory. The very ends for which He created all things is His glory. And so if we know that the glory of the Lord is subservient to no one or nothing, and His glory is seen in our salvation, then shouldn't we trust that no matter what struggles or trials we find ourselves in life, that our Lord will be there to keep us and to preserve us and to strengthen us and to sanctify us. For He must do so for His own glory. And the Lord will do nothing ever to detract from His own glory. And so we know that He will be faithful to every single word He has promised us in the Scriptures. Likewise, brothers and sisters, it is our duty then not to do anything to detract from the glory of God either. And what does that mean? It means living for His glory in life, in prosperity, in health, and in the best of times. Likewise, though, it also means living for His glory in death, in poverty, in sickness, and in the worst of times. And we do this by walking in faith and obedience. And when we take our eyes off of this truth, that is when we start to see ourselves acting and behaving in this very same way that the apostles did. right? Scared, afraid, unsafe, feeling like life is in limbo. But this is the problem. They didn't learn from the past event. This is what we read in verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, I want us to understand something when it says that their hearts were hardened. It doesn't mean that their hearts uh, hated Christ, right? It wasn't a hardening like we see in the Pharisees. It wasn't a hardening like we see when Pharaoh hardened himself against the Lord in the Old Testament. But rather, this word for, for hardened can also mean dullness. And so William Hendrickson says this. He says, he describes it as a spiritual sluggishness which comes from a failure to meditate on the works and nature of Christ. Right? So that hardening of the, of the apostles here is a spiritual sluggishness which comes from a failure to meditate upon the work and the nature of Christ. You see, they've just seen 5,000 plus be fed. Right? They've seen this messianic symbolism going on. They are privately being taught by Christ and yet they don't take the time to think what all of this means. And what it is that we see in this lack of time of, of spending thinking about Jesus, in this spiritual sluggishness, in this dullness of heart, is that this all stems from a heart problem. Right? They have a, they have a heart issue. And this is true for all of us here. Anytime 
that we fail to know Christ correctly, any time we fail to identify Christ, it is a heart issue. It's certainly not a revelation issue. We are the problem, not the Word of God. Right? Their lack of concern for Christ highlights or brings out what is lacking in their own hearts. For if anyone should have no excuse to know Christ correctly, you would think it was them. And yet they constantly are failing. And yet it is this dullness of heart that has now denied them as they are on this boat the opportunity to recognize the wonderful glory of Christ, which would have brought about a completely different reaction in this event had they recognized the glory of Christ in the last event. But let's look at what Jesus says to comfort them at the end of verse 50. When he sees them and they're terrified, he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Usually, when we think of the great I am statements of Scripture, we think of John's Gospel, don't we? Where we read, I am the Good Shepherd. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the bread of life. Well, Mark likewise has one of these I am statements. Here we have this Greek word, I me, which means I am. And so Jesus has come to the disciples walking upon the water and says to them, do not be afraid, for I am is here. And immediately, this ought to draw our minds, as it should have drawn the apostles' minds, right back to those great texts of the Old Testament where we read those I am statements. Remember in Exodus, as our Lord appears before Moses in the burning bush, and he tells him to go tell the Israelites that he is going to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. Right? Moses says, well, they're going to ask me who sent me. Or, so who should I say sent me? And the Lord responds what? I am who I am. Right? He says, tell them that I am sent you. And what was it that Moses was to tell everyone? It was that God heard the cries of the people. And he has promised to deliver them to safety from the hand of the Egyptians and to put them in that land that is flowing with milk and honey. Right? He tells this to Moses so that the fears of the Israelites would disappear. He says, I've come to bring deliverance. I've come to bring safety. And when you know this, when you know the glory of God, when you know that He seeks His glory in all things, when you are told that the great I Am is on your side, all fears should vanish, shouldn't they? All fears should vanish. And this is exactly what happens in our text here today. In Matthew's parallel account of this, he tells us that Peter actually speaks to the Lord while on the boat. And this is what we see. As soon as Peter beholds the glory of Christ, he is ready to act in faith. Right? As soon as they see Jesus not being beaten by the waves, not being pushed back by the wind, and having no effect upon Him, standing upon the mountaintop, they all of a sudden are no longer afraid. They now feel safe with Christ. In fact, in that parallel account in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, we're told that Jesus says, Don't be afraid. And that Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come unto the water with you. Here we see all of a sudden, Peter gets this this courage now that he's seen the glory of Christ. Peter is willing to go upon the water where Christ is. As Peter beholds the glory of Christ, all of a sudden, what do we see? A change in his attitude. Now he's dependent. He is submissive. And he is obedient to Christ. 
And brothers and sisters, this is a response that all of us ought to have. Yet it shouldn't take something like this, an event like this, for us to do it. Right? The glory of Christ ought to always be ever-present before our eyes. This is what a text like this ought to teach us. That we are always to be beholding the wonderful glory of Christ every day. And how do we do that? By waking up and thinking about Christ, meditating upon Christ. What does it mean to say, it is I? Because when Christ whispers, it is I to the hearts of His people, what He is saying to you is this, do not be afraid. It is I, your God. Do not be afraid. It is I, your Master. Do not be afraid. It is I, your Savior. Do not be afraid. It is I, your Redeemer. It is I, your friend, your prophet, your priest, and your King. And knowing this, it ought to make us the most cheerful of saints, even in the darkest of hours. But we must be awakened, brothers and sisters, out of our spiritual stupor. We must, by faith and by the aid of the Spirit, seek out our Lord to know Him better, We have to pray that God would give us that desire to know Christ better by the Scriptures. That He would remove any dullness in our heart. Any lack of concern that we have for knowing Christ rightly. Also, that He would reveal to us more about His glory. More about Himself. More about His attributes. And what they mean in light of Christ's coming. And how we ought to apply those things we learn to our life. We ought to pray that He give us a desire to seek after His glory in all things. In God's glory, as one author puts it, is essentially the sum of His attributes. God's glory is essentially the sum of His attributes. Or as Thomas Watson says, the glory of God is the sparkling of the deity. The glory of God is the sparkling of the deity. And so in recognition of that glory, we are to ascribe glory to God. Now, through praise, through adoration, through worship, through obedience. So we, like Peter, the more we understand, are ready to walk upon the water top just like Peter. We are ready to go through the fire without hesitation because we know that we are safe with Christ. He continues to be our high priest. Father, Son, and Spirit continue to act on our behalf for their glory, which means only good things for us. And so as we draw to a close, I want to leave you with this great quote I read from Uh, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, on why it is a good thing that God seeks His glory in all things. Why that is good for us as believers. And so he says this, God in seeking His glory seeks the good of His creatures and in communicating His fullness for them, He does it for Himself. Because their good which He seeks is so much in union and communion with Himself. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks Himself. And in seeking Himself, expressed in His own beauty and fullness, He seeks their glory and their happiness. You see, God, in everything He does, seeks His own glory. And as He seeks His glory, it is expressed in doing that which is good for His creatures. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to live confidently, knowing that by faith in Jesus Christ, 
Right? We have safety in Christ. Please, if you would, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you for the assurances we have of Scripture. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who lives to make intercession on our behalf. Father, we pray that we would recognize this more and more each day so that we would not have to deal unnecessarily with struggles and fear and terror and be frightened by those things that we know should not concern us. Father, likewise, we pray that you would continue to place before our eyes the wonderful glory of Christ our Savior. That, Father, you would cause us to remember uh, your attributes more and more each day that you would cause us to desire to think about them and to contemplate and to, and to meditate upon the uh, upon that great and uh, sparkling deity. And so, Father, as we come before you, uh, we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.